Do you ever catch yourself wishing you didn't have to stay positive? Or maybe you've been working on keeping a positive mindset for years, but it still feels like a daily battle sometimes. Having a chronic illness means you're being told to stay positive all the time. And let's be honest, it's exhausting. Because pushing ourselves to stay positive is not actually positive. There's a much easier way to get a strong, positive mindset and all of the feel-good perks that come with it without the pressure of looking on the bright side. Check out my free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset. In it, I give the straight scoop on strategies that work and common strategies that are a waste of time and energy. Go to andreahansencoaching.com now or use the link in this podcast description and get your free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset, today. It's not often that you meet someone who has known what they wanted to do since childhood. Dr. Francesca Awu knew from a very early age, like age eight, that she wanted to help families who were affected by chronic illness. That's quite a thing to know from such an early age, but she did. And as she grew up, her passion only deepened and she stayed very true to her calling. Her story is amazing. And she is such a natural storyteller that I know this episode is gonna grab you from the very beginning and leave you wanting to hear more from Dr. Francesca Uwu. So please enjoy this week's episode and visit andreahansencoaching.com for more on Dr. Uwu, resources we talk about in the show and transcripts from today's episode. Welcome to the Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis podcast. I'm Andrea Hansen, author, motivational speaker, and master certified coach. When I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I was told I would never reach my goals. But I did. And I'm on a mission to prove that life with a chronic illness can still be expansive and quite remarkable. Everyone has their own unique path. I'm talking to people living with a chronic illness that come from different backgrounds, have different points of view, and are achieving amazing life goals of all kinds to inspire you to achieve what you thought was impossible. These stories are raw, uncensored, and judgment-free. Listener discretion is advised. I'm here today with Francesca Awu. Dr. Awu is the owner of FKO Therapy and Consultation Services, LLC, an online private practice that focuses on couples and families navigating the complex world of chronic illness. She was born and raised in the South Bronx, New York, to immigrant parents via way of Ghana, West Africa. She is passionate about working with this population due to several chronic illnesses within her family. While working on her PhD, she was diagnosed with fibroids, stage 4 endometriosis, and adenomyosis, which would result in multiple surgeries. Both parents would be diagnosed with cancer, and her brother would experience complications of sickle cell disease. Having these personal experiences with her chronic illness has driven her passion to work with this population exclusively. Dr. Awu is licensed in Maryland, New York, and Ohio. She graduated from a doctoral program with a marriage and family therapy specialization from the University of Akron in Ohio. She also has a Master of Science in Mental Health and Counseling and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from her beloved alma mater, the University of Buffalo. She has 14 years of experience using systemic-based therapies and a culturally sensitive model when working with marginalized populations in a variety of settings, such as psychiatric and medical facilities, community mental health agencies, university clinic settings, and within the school system. 
Wow. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. I love it. That's quite the bio. Yeah. <laughs> I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I feel old. I'm not old, no. but I feel old. You're, yeah, you're not old at all. I think that's amazing. You know, the thing that sticks out to me, of, of course, is you're doing something that not everybody does, but you're taking mm-hmm. your personal, very personal journey and challenges that you've had in your life, and you turned it around, you built on it with all of these professional degrees and experience, and now you're helping that same chronic illness community that you understand so personally. Absolutely. I love it. I've always thought that you're you're not really working if this is something you're passionate about. So it's not really work to me. It is something I've always dreamt about, something I've been planning since I was eight because I was one of those kids. It's just, I'm just glad to actually be living out in my purpose. Wow. So you've been planning this since you were eight to go into therapy and all of that? It's creepy, actually. It's just a, a little bit creepy. I was one of those kids that was always watching 2020 and Dateline and the news at six o'clock till nine. I was one of those kids. I was always doing something that a normal eight-year-old wouldn't necessarily do. Right. How I even fell into this at eight, I just remember this one event that just always stuck out to me. My brother was having a sickle cell crisis. He was in the hospital for some time, and I was sitting in a chair across from his bed, and I was clutching like the sides of the chair. My parents were standing on either side of him, arguing with each other. And my father was talking about, he doesn't understand why this is happening. And he's kind of like blaming my mom and my mom is blaming him. And then uh, some doctors walked in with some residents. And the first question that the doctor says is, is your home clean? And I just remember kind of tilting my head thinking, oh my God, why would he even ask a question like that? And then um, the doctor also started to question my parents' profession. Are you really, like, what do you do? Are you really an architect? And asking my mom, I'm really a registered nurse. And once again, is your house clean? Do you have roaches in your house? Then once again, my parents started arguing. And I'm thinking, is a therapist or a social worker going to come in here and kind of talk to my parents about, this is not good for you as a couple. This is not good for your child who is currently sick. And that's literally how I fell into this. I just remember thinking, oh, I'm going to be a pediatrician because I was always in the hospital setting. I'm going to be a pediatrician. I'm going to figure out a cure for sickle cell disease. And as I got older, I got more interested in psychology and couple dynamics and family dynamics and how all of us experienced a chronic illness, not just a person with the illness. Yes, that's that's very true. And I think it's also really important and because it's something that I talk about a lot too mm-hmm. is that relationship, especially when you're going through either an event with your diagnosis or even just a diagnosis to begin with, that relationship you have with the authority figure in the room, right, the doctor, the nurse or whatever, is so important and sometimes they can be so detrimental. Absolutely. If you don't have a good relationship with the doctor that you have to interact with, it is more than likely going to affect your care. It's going to affect the way you interact with the doctor. It's going to affect how you talk about your symptoms, if you feel comfortable, if you come back. So on the doctor's end, sometimes you have to be just extend a little bit more grace <laughs> to the families that to the families that are coming in and a little better bedside decorum. Yes. And how they interact with clients, well, how they interact with patients. 
in the medical setting because it can really alter the course of care with that patient. Absolutely. It's funny because one thing I always advocate for, and I know it's a little controversial, is if you don't like your doctor and there's other doctors available, dump your doctor, go to other doctors. I know people are like, oh, it's doctor shopping and you get a bad name and they're not going to like you. And I'm like, no, no, you've got to advocate for yourself, especially when they say off. Like I've had some really off the wall things said to me by nurses and Mm -hmm. doctors and all sorts of things. And you've got to advocate for yourself. Absolutely. If you don't advocate for yourself, doctors, sometimes doctors might not think you're even serious about your condition. So it's important for patients to actually speak up so doctors understand. But I definitely have a story about that one too. So (laughs) can't wait. Okay. But let's let's continue because I want to stay. So you are eight years old and you're looking at this, the scene play out with mm-hmm. your brother and the doctor and your family, and you're realizing you, you wanted to go into psychiatry or psychology. Yes. Yes. I thought that was the best route because, mm-hmm. once again, it's not just about the person experiencing the illness, but it's also the family dynamics. So, if we're looking at the couple unit, the couple might start blaming each other that what is going on with our child? Are you taking care of our child? There's also an additional dynamic to that is that I had a sister who passed away. She had sickle cell disease as well. So once again, trauma upon trauma upon trauma for my parents to experience their two-year-old child dying even before they got to the hospital. Um, she died in the cab. And that is something that my mom still processes till this day. And that happened in the 70s. So it's something that still sits with her. So fast forward to, I have another child with sickle cell disease, and this is what's happening with him. So it was a very traumatic experience for my family. And and also for me, I didn't realize how traumatic it was until I went to college. And, you know, they're separating us. And anytime they would separate us, one of us would get sick. And my father had to sit me down one day and said, this nonsense has to stop. (laughs) You know, you should be able to like not be together all the time. But it was just, that's just our connection. You know, during childhood, that was our connection. He was my best friend. So whenever he was in the hospital, once again, I would get sick. But it seems more so maybe our child should be in therapy. Her brother is gone and she's sick, but we're not explaining to her why he's sick and what the illness is. No one ever explained to me what sickle cell disease was. And I didn't learn it until my first week in biology class, thinking I was going to be pre-med. Oh, yeah, that didn't go over too well. (laughs) (laughs) The first sentence in the blood disorders chapter about sickle cell disease was that patients usually do not survive past the age of 30. Oh, my gosh. So I called my brother and I was asking him, I was, why? What's going on here? How come no one told me? this information. And then he goes on about how, you know, you're so emotional and this is why we didn't tell you. Oh, good, good. Thanks for not telling me, but it's nice for me to know. So I kind of made it my own personal mission to find out more about sickle cell disease and to educate myself about the, um, the prognosis of the illness and what I can do to actually help the sickle cell disease community. Right. And it's really interesting. You touched on something that I think a lot because I I think we're about the same age. And I remember when I, you know, went through different things in my childhood, especially when I was little, you know, like five, eight, whatever, there was very much the thought that like kids don't really, 
you don't have to tell them. Like they're too little, they don't understand. And by they don't understand, it was translated somehow into that means it's not going to affect them. Right. Kids understand more than we think they understand, especially when working with children. They will tell you some things and you will be completely shocked. So I always tell parents, be careful about what it is that you're doing around your children or what you're saying around your children, because they'll come back and tell me. So Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) sure. Just make sure that you're cognizant. Exactly. (laughs) Eventually I'll find out. Wow. So when you were in you're in school and you're looking at you going into graduate school and all of that. That is when you had your own personal diagnoses. Is that right? Yes. I've always had a menstrual cycle that was the cycle from hell. I always referred to it as Satan. Eventually, I started referring to it as doomsday. And I didn't realize that my cycle was not supposed to be this way. It was difficult for me to speak. I always had a really bad headache. And uh, my best friend at the time told me, you know, this is not normal, right? I'm like, what do you mean this is not normal? My mom told me this is normal. You're supposed to have pain. And thinking about this now, of course, my mom is a registered nurse from like 1940. (laughs) (laughs) The things that they learned then are completely different from what we know now, our bodies. So I thought I was supposed to always be in pain. And my friend said, no, you need to have that checked out because this is not normal. Just an extended amount of time using the bathroom, frequent constipation, vomiting. The toilet and I were best friends, so we always kept a very clean bathroom. (laughs) And there were times when I would actually just sleep in the bathroom. It was just, it was very, when I look back on it, it was very traumatic for me. But I thought this is life and this is just how life is going to be for me. Right. Especially when it's something that people don't really talk about a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And kind of the general understanding is like, yeah, that time of the month just sucks and you have cramps and it hurts. And some people have cramps right. more than others and some people have heavy flows. And so it's easy to think that they're talking about it the same way as what's happening to you. Absolutely. And, but you don't really go into those details to realize, oh, no, what they mean mm-hmm. by pain and cramps and whatnot yeah. is, is like a fraction of Absolutely. what I'm feeling. And, you know, it's another reason why we just have to communicate. We've got to talk about things. Absolutely. And that leads me to talk about the cultural differences as well. Being in elementary school, I'll never forget this because I had this conversation with a friend years ago. And when I was telling her about my diagnosis, because she also had polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I told her, I remember your mom saying that we were being nasty quote unquote because we were talking about our periods and she started laughing she's like yeah because we never talked about it again after that like exactly never talked about it again after that so here we are you know in college experiencing the symptoms and no one's talking about it so even when i got diagnosed with endometriosis the first words that came out of my mouth was what that's a that's a white woman's disease i don't know what that is Because I never heard any Black women actively talking about their cycles or having any sort of cysts or fibroids. And Uncle Google (laughs) and I have a very good relationship. Oh, gosh. I I don't. (laughs) I don't have such a good relationship. So it's nice to hear that it can be possible. With WebMD, you know, there was still (laughs) separate going to die at some point in time. That's right. But just Googling my symptoms at the time, it was a whole list of symptoms. And I said, something is not matching up. This isn't just fibroids. This has to be something else. 
but I didn't see any Black women talking about endometriosis at the time. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know. I, I kept reading about it. And once again, going into Facebook groups and not seeing any Black women actively talking about this. So I just, I felt very isolated. I felt very alone. Um, I felt very ashamed that this is what was happening because the stereotype said as an African-American woman, I'm supposed to be able to have children. I'm supposed to be okay. I'm supposed to kind of just man up and deal with these issues. But at the time, I really wasn't dealing with it because there was so much going on at the time from the first diagnosis of fibroids. And then the following year, there was another diagnosis and the following year, there was another diagnosis. So it just kept coming back to back to back every year. And within that time span, both parents being diagnosed with cancer and my brother had a, um, a stent in the ICU. And I just remember asking God, did I do something wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Are you punishing me for something? What have I done? And then I started to reassess almost everything in my life thinking I have to have done something because this doesn't make any sense. I am dedicating my life to people. I am going to work when I probably shouldn't because I was changing at that time every 30 minutes. So I had an alarm on my phone that would go off every 30 minutes and I'd run to the bathroom. I'd change. I get right, right back into my session. And when you're working with kids, once again, kids notice everything. They would ask me, are you feeling okay? You look a little pale today. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, everything's okay. You're lying to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they know. <laughs> like, no, yeah, they, they, I'm pretty sure they definitely knew, but I had a really understanding supervisor at the time who allowed me to wear sweatpants and a t-shirt but then it started to feel really odd because people were talking people were talking like what's going on with her she's supposed to be a professional she's in a doctoral program why does she look like this and i sit back sometimes and i'm thinking damn you guys are some assholes yeah <laughs> what what could she like why can't she just sit me down like hey is there something going on with you do you want to talk about we're in a therapy program <laughs> you know? Isn't that you, the irony, it, though, right? You're right. working with people who should totally understand, and they're the exact same people who were like, what's going on with her? Let's talk about oh, that. And she can wear sweatpants. You know, I, I can hear it. I know exactly what they were saying. Yeah. How, did you, how did you handle that? What did you do? What did you say to them? Or did you? <sighs> Let's see. I'm thinking of the instances in my head. There were, there were so many. I had an instance of a person oh my gosh. bumping into me and using, using my stomach to brace herself. So she kind of just bumped into what? me because there was a rumor that I was hiding a pregnancy. Which, <laughs> by the way, who cares, right? Who exactly. gives a shit if you're hiding a pregnancy? Exactly. Oh, and my God. I didn't say anything to her. That's terrible. I was, I was so in my head about how I'm feeling, but I was very cognizant of how others were treating me. Not knowing what was going on with my body. I feel like I went to bed at 28. I woke up. I went to bed with a six pack. I woke up with a one pack and one side, the left side of my stomach was obviously protruding. You could just see it. So I started wearing shirts that were really big. I was a size four at the time and I shot up to about a size 16 throughout this entire process. And it was literally all in my stomach. So my clothes started getting bigger. My pants started getting bigger. My hair started getting getting stringier and falling out. Right. And I just didn't understand what was going on with me. I kept seeing doctor after doctor after doctor. I saw six doctors and the seventh doctor, God bless her, an African-American woman. She sat there and just looked at me like, you're on 13 pills. 
So yeah, and supplements. And I was under the impression that these supplements are going to cure me and I'm going to find the magic herb and they're going to dissolve the fibroids. No, no, that's not how this works. I mean, some individuals will say that and these magical herbs they find on Instagram will work for them, but it didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even <laughs> exercising, and I ch- I've changed my diet like 20 million times and nothing was working. And um, I had a discussion with my brother about it because I bought a juicer. Mm-hmm. And he started yelling at me. He said, do you think a freaking juicer is going to help you with your condition? Why can't you just understand that you're always going to be in pain? I said, are you talking about yourself or are you talking about me? And then he got really quiet. And I said, I'm going to deal with this the best way I know how. I'm going to deal with this. I was able to talk to my circle of friends all the time. We'd be on the phone at all hours of the night. It's so important. I, it, it most absolutely is because they understood. And eventually... Some of these friends got diagnosed with fibroids as well, endometriosis, picos, having hysterectomies. And I sat back and thought, is it the neighborhood we were raised in? Why do all of us have fertility issues? Why are all of us having to do IVF or something extra in order to start our families? This just seemed really odd to me. Very odd. Till this day, it seems odd. We still talk about this. That's really, that. Yeah. I mean, I get it. That's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question because they do find that there are so many environmental causes for things and so many, you know, I mean, even with MS, it's in Mm -hmm. higher concentrations in places that have like higher air pollution and things like that. I think that's a real question. Absolutely. Absolutely. I get when... You go to so many different doctors and you're looking for this diagnosis. It's it's almost like as people living with a chronic illness, whether it's diagnosed or before diagnosis, and we just know that our body is going nuts and we got to figure it out. It's like you get it from both sides. You get it from every doctor just says, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's this. Start taking it. Then we also get it from the other side (laughs) of you can heal this naturally. Oh, you can do, you know, it's all about it. And I, I, you know, I do both, right? Mm-hmm. I am all about, I've always been on some kind of, you know, quote, Western medicine for my MS. And I'm always mm-hmm. looking at like supplements and things like that. But, you know, as well as other holistic things, you know, mindset and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes it can just feel like it's this assault from both sides of don't do this, do that, don't do that. What are you doing with there? Don't do, you know, and it's almost like when we're looking and seeking for answers, some of the ways people try to make themselves look like the answer is by putting down whoever else it was that we're seeing and, oh, you're on that, don't do that. And and it's just, it's this cacophony. Overwhelming. Yes, it's overwhelming and it's just... It's a lot for us to deal with. And like you, we end up on things like 13 different medications with, and still it sounds like no answer. Absolutely. So the first doctor, first, second or third, whichever one, (laughs) I don't want to put her business, I don't want to put her out of business, I won't mention her name. Sure, Um, I get it. We ran through a litany of tests. At first, she thought it was lupus because my skin was changing color, which once again, Uncle Wupu did not mention this. (laughs) <laughs> so I got really, really light around the eyes, around my cheek area, and around my lips. So she thought it was lupus. And I'm thinking, oh my God, she's going to kill you, Fran. Get out. But I was so desperate at the time that I decided I'm just going to keep going to these appointments and uh, 
working with her because I didn't know what else to do. Then it was a possible diagnosis of leukemia. And I'm thinking, oh, good God, this seems, it seems plausible at the time because I was having nosebleeds every single day. But once again, what doctors do not understand is it's not just about how the patient is presenting in front of you. It's about the context of the life and what is going on at the time. So I'm in a doctoral program. I'm one of two African-Americans in the program. And uh, it was a lot of racial discrimination. And it's something that sometimes I don't even talk about in depth one purpose because it's too much to think about. Having the racial discrimination and then having these personal issues and both your parents having cancer, brothers and ICU, I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to deal with it. So my safe haven was to be at home. And I'm sitting there thinking, you shouldn't be sitting here, friend. And she pres- she's writing a prescription and she went to Uncle Google to look up the prescription. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are you doing here? Get out of the room. She doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I decided I'm going to take this prescription and I get in my car and I call my friend and she says, don't you dare take that medication. Don't you dare take that medication. That is not what is wrong with you. Don't you take it. You don't need it. You need to find another doctor. And I told her, if you could give me a pill with horse manure in it and said it'll cure me, I would have taken it at the time. I was so desperate. I I understand. And I think a lot of people understand that. I was so desperate. I went from being a pescatarian to a vegetarian to a vegan to a raw vegan. I've changed the diet so many times, the 13 pills and supplements. I had a pill for almost every bodily function because my body just wasn't functioning. And at the time, I thought it has to be me. I have to be the crazy one here. The doctors are not finding anything. It has to be me. Fast forward to 2013. And this is a few weeks after my birthday. I'm having these really bad pains on my left side. It felt like someone was stabbing me with a little knife. And I kept saying, are you having a cycle? Well, nothing is happening here. What exactly is going on here? And then I had called a friend because I told her I had not urinated in 24 hours and I had a gallon of water. And I told her, please do not call your mom. Please do not call your mom. Just ask her, like, pose a hypothetical. Five minutes later, she calls me and she's like, what are you doing? You need to go to the hospital and you need to go now. And I'm thinking, "Ah, I'll be fine. I hung up the phone and I passed out. I passed out. I didn't realize it. So when I actually came to, I drove myself to the ER because I'm very cheap and I was not going to call 911. Oh, I did the same thing. I drove myself to the ophthalmologist when I had optic neuritis and I like couldn't see out of one of my eyes, but I was like, I'm driving myself. Okay. I I (laughs) I did not want, I did not want that bill. And let's see, (laughs) the doctor told me it was gas initially. So a week later, (laughs) I go in, I'm like, this shit is not gas. What is he talking about? This is not gas. A week later, I go in because I was exercising, thinking that I'm fat. I'm the problem. It has to be you. And I did a squat and something came out. And I kind of panicked and I ran to the bathroom and I did a squat again. And I felt this lump poking out of my vaginal opening. And I was like, oh, my God. I called my mom and I was screaming into the phone. There is something coming out of me. She's like, what do you mean? I said, there's this lump coming out of me. She's like, go to the hospital right now. So I went to the hospital 
and they put the little, I call it the weavy pad on the bed because I was still having life cycle. And I told them it's been 30 something days. I stopped counting. You think at that point I would have done the transvaginal. <laughs> yeah. Because I've been to that ER so many times. So they finally did the transvaginal from the doctor. Well, the nurse at the time, the male nurse was really nice, gave me some cookies and everything that they billed me for, too. They billed me for the cookies. Like $50? <laughs> $50 for a Keebler? Absolutely ridiculous. They were some good cookies, though. And I was there for maybe about two hours or three hours, probably longer than that. This nurse comes in, and I, not the doctor comes in. And I remember her because she had black hair with blonde highlights. And I thought, oh, that's a really bad combination. <laughs> <laughs> and she walks in and she's so happy and peppy. And I'm thinking, your voice is really annoying me right now. And she says, oh, sweetie, you're all fibrous. I said, what, what does that mean? She's like, your entire uterus, nothing but fibroids. And I said, it took for me to pass out and come here multiple times for you to tell me this. You didn't run a transvaginal. You didn't do an ultrasound. And I told you I'd been bleeding for months. Yeah. And she kind of just looked at me like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I said, okay, thanks for letting me know. And then it just seemed to be, I was always in that ER. It was annoying at this point. Annoying enough to the doctors. The next visit, I was told after I finished throwing up, you should, put, why do you keep doing this to yourself? You should get a hysterectomy already. I'll never forget that. My jaw just dropped. I can't believe... I'll never forget it. Till this day, it bothers me. And I remember I threw up again. And then I said, give me my discharge papers. And he looked at me as if I was being disrespectful. And I said, would you have said that to a 28-year-old white woman? And they didn't say anything at all. And then the, the nurse behind him says, well, I have two friends, 19 and 25. And they have hysterectomies. And they're just, you know, their quality of life has improved. Okay. She just buried the lead right there, right? I just didn't understand the purpose in her saying that. <laughs> no, no. And I you're didn't. exactly right. They wouldn't, you know, I can't, I can't guarantee that they, they would take a white woman seriously 100% anyway, yeah. because mm -hmm. we're still women and we're still hysterical and don't understand. But I, yeah, I mean, I think you were exactly right with that question. She gave me my discharge papers and I never went back. Good. And then that's when I moved into self-medicating because the doctors weren't doing anything. So once again, dealing with the racial discrimination in my program mm -hmm. and self-medicating and worrying about my family, I just remember another day of just collapsing to the floor and just crying and screaming. I feel like that's when my neighbors finally moved, <laughs> crying and screaming and asking God, what is he doing to me and what is the purpose of all the pain that I'm experiencing. There has to be a purpose in this. There has to be. No one should be going through this much pain because I haven't done anything in my life to deserve this amount of pain. And I told myself, keep looking for doctors. This is not the end of my story. Please keep looking for doctors. I've had doctors told me to watch and wait. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck are we waiting and watching for? For the fibroid to pop out of my vagina? What are we waiting for? I mean, so, in the meantime, is there any kind of treatment for this or is it just I, like, you got this, good luck? I was on birth control and once again, friends to the rescue. A friend said, I don't understand why your fibroids keep getting bigger because I felt like I did an MRI and blood work like every three months or so, but probably not. 
and they just kept getting bigger and bigger. And my friend said, read the package to me. What, what birth control pill are you on? And the birth control contained estradiol. That is estrogen. I said, yeah, but it's only 0.01%. She's like, it doesn't matter. It's estrogen. It is feeding the fibroids. You need to get a new doctor. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh God, I'm like, I'm on this journey again to find a new doctor. So I did find a new doctor after throwing things around my apartment. And I was just so angry. I needed a way to get out this anger. Mm-hmm. I decided I need to find a doctor who is at least an hour and something and change way away from Akron because Akron is not cutting it for me right now. Mm. So I found the doctor who basically saved my life. Before I was not in the best mindset at all. I wasn't feeling good at myself. I remember I hadn't even looked at it in a mirror for maybe a year or so. I didn't want to look at myself because it was an obvious deformity of the way that my stomach looked. And even the way down to my feet. So one of the largest fibroids was the size of a watermelon. was basically sitting on my left side. So my left foot was a, a little blackish purplish and always just really, really swollen. So it was also hard for me to walk. So I also could wear sneakers. Thank God for that. Let's also remind everybody that you are still working. You're still getting yeah. your degree. I don't know where you are, but you've got, uh, I mean, you're still studying. You're, I mean, a master's, a doctorate, that's no joke. And you're still on top of that. I, I had to be because I always told myself, your journey is going to inspire someone else to keep going. At a point where I thought I didn't want to keep going, I told myself, you have to keep going because this is not just for me. This is for families that are similar to my own. This is, I felt like I was carrying the entire community on my back and I still try to operate with that same mindset. I can help people. <laughs> and the, these are my people. They're always going to be on my back. This is, at least this is what I feel like I have to do. I don't want to let my community down because so many people have so much faith in me and they knew this was the route that I was going to take. And it was so disheartening for all of us that this is what was happening. And I told myself, I'm not going to drop out. I was encouraged to stop the program by my advisor. And I told her, no, I told her, no, I, I am not going to stop this program. And in between all of this, I got into a car accident. I was hit by another vehicle, a Dodge Ram. Because, you know, the Midwest, you know, yeah, oh you God. don't drive regular cars there. Yeah. <laughs> Standard <laughs> issue. Have, yeah. We have to have big dually. body type of cars. Mm -hmm. yeah. I lived in Texas long enough yeah. to know about that. Oh, okay. Very similar. <laughs> yeah. I was hit by a Dodge Ram in my Hyundai Elantra. Whew. Thank God this is not an ad for Hyundais because that car <laughs> <laughs> it looked it looked amazing. It had the heated seats, everything I needed. It was like my own personal heating pad whenever I got into the car. <laughs> However, I remember that day like it was yesterday. I'm sitting in the car on the 10 and the 2, kind of bopping my little head. I'm pretty sure I was listening to some sort of rap music. And I was looking in the rear view. And before I could finish my sentence, boom, he hit me. And I think the police officer or progressive told me that he had hit me at 50 miles per hour. Wow. So the impact of that accident caused one of the large tumors to push forward. It had shifted. So I remember getting out the car. I was so nauseous. I was throwing up and I couldn't talk. Oh and I couldn't get out on the driver's side. So I had to get out on the passenger side. And I remember getting out and almost going into traffic. Then a lady in front of me, this nice, this nice lady walks up. She says, oh my God, get out. Get out of traffic. Don't worry. I'll talk for you. And I'm like, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm looking at the, the college student, this little kid that hit me. 
And I wanted to say something to him, but the words just wouldn't come out. And my right hand was stuck to my chest. And I'm pretty sure my head had hit the steering wheel because I had a concussion. And I was diagnosed with a post-concussion for about a year. And I remember thinking, once again, God, you're punishing me. You're punishing me. Did I do something wrong? Here we are again. <laughs> you know what, though? This, this is the true healer's journey. It's always some shit. It's, it's always some <laughs> shit. I'm like, and it's the healer's while. journey, and you're like, it is some shit. It is, but it's it's often people who are called to heal in the Don't most profound me. ways. Don't call me. I didn't ask to be called. <laughs> <laughs> I was tired. I, I was completely, <laughs> I was just drained. Yeah. So, you know, she spoke to the officer, and she said she was sitting in traffic, and I saw him. She wasn't moving. He hit her. The officer took the statement. He wanted me to speak. And she's like, she clearly can't speak. Why do you keep pressing her to speak? And in my head, I'm thinking, this is so Ohio. I should have stayed my, my behind in the bra. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. So I'm, I'm sitting on the side of the road with this lady as she's talking to me and trying to get to know me better. And I don't know what they call these things. The guys that come up and sweep up after the accidents. This big, burly, blonde-headed man what are they called? Jumpers? With, yeah, the, with the, the overalls? Um, yes, overall. Yes. Yeah. With the white shirt underneath, sure. the sleeves cut. And Again, standard issue. Exactly. <laughs> and a Confederate flag on his arm. I said, oh, oh my, my Jesus. I said, you might as well just take me now, Jesus. What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? And the looks and stares that I'm getting. And the ambulance came and he looked at me for two seconds. She's fine. <gasps> I just didn't understand it. So my friend came to pick me up and I'm sitting in his car waiting for them to clear up the traffic. And I see the team that hit me laughing with the police officer. And I keep telling myself, I don't know why you came here. I know you came here for a reason, but I'm just not understanding it. I was taken out of New York City. I know everyone and everything. Very culturally diverse. Love it. Yeah. And then moving to the Midwest, and this is what you're experiencing. I just, but I kept telling myself, you have to keep going. You're here for a reason. Wow. I don't want you giving up. I said I was going to get a PhD. I'm going to get this PhD, and that's what I'm doing. So suck it up. But in sucking it up, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's what exacerbated a lot of the chronic illnesses. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you, had you looked into things like the trauma you know, from multiple things and how they are, you know, absolutely what you're experiencing in your body and how they're absolutely. related. Absolutely. I looked into all of that because it, everything that I've been through has helped me build a deeper relationship with myself and with God. And, you know, God and I have a very special relationship. I talk to him sideways. He talks to me sideways. It is what it is. We have that type of relationship. He knows who I am. <laughs> and I, I had to build that relationship with him because granted, I can be on the phone with my friends at all hours of the night, but they're not going to be there to help me when I am feeling like I don't know if I'm going to wake up in the morning. I was in so much pain. My bathroom was my best friend. I slept in a bathroom for months on the floor. So I always had back pain and I'd wake up in the morning and I would see vomit on the floor. And I'm thinking, what if I didn't wake up? Mm -hmm. what if I didn't wake up? 
And it was, once again, a very traumatic experience. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't even sleeping because then a PCP at the time suggested a sleep study. So the sleep study concluded that in the nine hours or so that I was supposedly sleeping, I actually went into REM sleep for about, I think it's like an hour, 30 minutes or something like that. So I was getting no sleep whatsoever. But right. once again, going into work or going into my program with a smile on my face. And sometimes I look at some pictures and I'm thinking, oh my God, you look horrible. Like you look absolutely horrible. Like you look pale, your hair is just thinning. You look like you're going through something. Yeah. And I just really, with the program, I just wasn't really talking about it. I didn't feel comfortable talking to any of them about anything that I was going through. I felt very isolated. I, I felt like the lone Mohican, basically. The last samurai, that was it. Yeah, it was just yeah. me against every everybody else because I was also very vocal about African-American issues and the field of psychology and how we treat African-American clients. And I realized I was the only one in the program that felt like that. And there were two African-Americans. I was the only one that felt like that. And I spoke up quite often. And after a while, I just stopped speaking because of an incident that happened. I just stopped speaking. And I told myself, don't speak unless it's absolutely necessary. Don't waste your energy. And my mentor told me, I think it's time you go to therapy. I said, no, I'm fine. As I said that, here comes the blood coming out of my nose. He's like, no, you're not. You're not fine. Your nose is bleeding every single day. You have multiple nosebleeds. Everyone knows you for your nosebleeds, friend. I was like the kid that had the tissue stuck up their nose in elementary no. school. Yeah. <laughs> at the nosebleed. Yeah. And I told myself, this is, it, it's the racism and discrimination that I'm facing in the program that I'm holding in. It's also the fibroids that I'm holding on to. <laughs> so fast, fast forward to the next diagnosis of endometriosis. Like I said, Uncle Google was telling me all these things. And I'm thinking, no, only white women have this. This can't be me. Because I was only seeing white women talk about this. And I'm thinking, thank you for talking about this. It opened up my mind and my heart to being around others who were experiencing the same thing mm -hmm. and them being able to explain to me what this condition is. So I'd gone in for an MRI with my new doctor and she figured everything out within the span of two weeks to a month, I believe. I went to see her, I did the MRI and I came back in maybe a week later and she says, did you look at, did you look at your CD? I said, yeah, I didn't see anything. Everything, everything just looked like a blob. It's like, exactly. Everything mm. is connected. I said, what do you mean? She says, you have endometriosis. And I took a deep breath and then I started crying. And I was like, this is a white woman's disease. And then she looked at me. She's just like, what? I'm like, none of us are talking about it. I don't see women like me talking about this. And she said, well, let me explain to you. She's showing me that my uterus is backwards. My fallopian tubes are pinned to the uterus along with my ovaries and then the uterus is connected to my intestines which is connected to my rectum so i have stage four endometriosis it's in i think stage four means it's in the most difficult spots and the way that it's spread i was blaming myself because i thought it's because of the diet change you went to being a vegan so you're eating a lot of soy this is your fault friend so i had to once again, work through this self-blame, self-hatred that I did this to myself and 
This was not something that's genetic or environmental. I did it to myself. It took a lot of work for me to say that this is not your fault. This is mm. absolutely nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with your diet. It had nothing to do with you. And my doctor, she was, oh, she was so attentive. She would call me every now and then and talk to me about, you need to take your pain medication. You need to take your pain medication. I want to make sure you're taking your pain medication. My brother would call me and tell me the same thing. And I just, I didn't want to take it because I felt, this makes you a drug addict. I don't want to be reliant on medication. I can do this myself through prayer. Oh, Lord, prayer. <laughs> through prayer, getting rest. I wasn't sleeping, so I don't know why I thought that. Right. And just having a positive, you know, mindset, toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Oh, God, I could talk all about that. And there was one instance where I called her and I was crying because I couldn't sit. I had mastered sitting at least an inch off of the chair. I have some very strong thighs. Very strong. <laughs> I can imagine. I can't even, just because it hurt? Because it hurt. So with the stage four connected to my rectum, it's in my rectal area. And it was just very difficult to sit. So I felt like I was always constantly pacing and then I'd sit for a couple of minutes and I'd get up and start pacing again. And I called her and I was just crying, saying, I can't deal with this anymore. Can you write me a prescription? She said, I'm so glad you called me because I'm going on vacation. So I'm going to put something in the mail for you right now. I can go pick it up tomorrow and take it. And I called my brother and I said, yeah, I think it's time for surgery number two. And it had been nine months from the first surgery. So I think the first surgery was about three hours. By the time I was ready for surgery two, it was seven hours. Wow. So there are about three surgeons in there. My reproductive endocrinologist, I think the urologist, and the colorectal surgeon. I just, it was a lot. I'm laying there and I remember this because I was holding on to my chest and I made this joke because, you know, humor is something that has really gotten me through this and everyone's surrounding me. And I'm thinking, oh, Fran, just let your tits go. They sag anyway. <laughs> and everyone just started laughing. Uh <laughs> And that's all I remember when I went in there and I came out and the doctor's kind of like flicking me, just like, you did such a good job. You did such a good job. Oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that it was seven hours and I'm thinking, thank you, God, that I, my body sustained me. That's when I started changing my mindset. Thank right. you, God, for my body sustaining me through this seven-hour surgery and for all the pain that I've been through. I need you to take this event or events and use it and change it into something positive. Don't forget to acknowledge how bad it was, though, because we have a tendency to just want to focus on the outcome, but not the actual process. Because, you know, some people say no one wants to hear your struggle story. But that's the thing. If I had heard other Black women speaking about their struggle stories, I wouldn't have felt so isolated at the time. I wouldn't have felt so awkward as a Black woman having these fertility issues. I wouldn't have felt like on this island by myself if I had heard and seen other Black women talking about these fertility issues. Right. We you know people say things like, I don't want to talk about my struggles. I don't want to talk about my diagnosis. And I feel like they get that 
confused with things like I don't want to focus on the negative. You hear that, right? Well, you were talking about well, the toxic positivity. It's all connected. You know, I don't want to focus on the negative. And yes, yeah, some people are just focusing on the negative, but talking about your struggles, especially from that from that viewpoint of healing yourself and helping well, to heal others and helping to get the word out to communities that you know don't hear this. I think it's it's really interesting to look at and say like, oh, white girls have that. That's not anything to do with me. It's talking about our struggles from a sense of, I don't want to say obligation, but it, it's almost like, like I feel obligated to tell my story because I went through a lot of gaslighting from doctors oh, and nurses and people just trying to force their ugly stories onto me. Mm-hmm. And you feel it. And I feel this this sense of duty, I guess is a better way of saying it, to get my story out to say, hey, listen, when your doctor says these terrible things to you, you don't have to take on this story. Right. You don't have to listen to what they're saying, even though they're Absolutely. doctors, even though they're this authority figure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kind of feel like they have more importance than we do, especially when we're getting diagnosed or looking for a diagnosis, we feel like we're, like you said, it's we feel like it's all our fault. Mm-hmm. But really, I feel like some of that that blame on ourselves is coming from us accepting other people's stories about us. Absolutely. Absolutely. The amount of gaslighting and medical trauma I experienced throughout that entire process. And once I found that doctor, oh my God, that hospital was amazing. Absolutely amazing from the um, technicians when I would have the MRI. There's a specific MRI that they do for women with stage four endometriosis. I had no idea about this until I went in to have it done. So they actually have to put the contrast or the dye in vaginally and anally. So I'm laying on the table and she's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm like, ready for what? (laughs) I'm like, what are you doing? And she's oh, they didn't tell you? I'm like, oh, I felt like I was being punked. I kept looking around the room, waiting for someone to come out and say, ah, we're kidding. No, they weren't kidding. So once again, traumatic. At that point, I had just become so, I don't want anyone touching me. I don't want anyone touching me. This is, it's, there's been way too many hands down there. <laughs> way too many hands. I'm, I'm tired of this. But I realized you have to let this go and just get it done. So afterwards, the tech walked up to me, and I'm pretty sure she shouldn't have done this, but she did it anyway. And she gave me a hug. And she whispered in my ear, everything is going to be okay. We're going to take good care of you. She didn't have to do that. Ugh. She didn't have to do that, but she Tears. did it anyway. She did it anyway. And I just remember every time I had to go in for an MLI, the tech was always just very, the, the empathy, very welcoming, very considerate. Because I'm pretty sure they knew how difficult this was for me. Maybe I didn't understand my facial expressions, but maybe they were seeing that I was scared. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot, but they took incredible care of me. I'm pretty sure I had the same nurse from surgery one to surgery two, Kim. And when I saw her the second time around, she recognized me. She's like, oh, you're back. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm back. And once again, remembering all of the doctors and the nurses who did some things for me, it just changed the way I felt about humanity in general. I felt like people actually cared. And afterwards, when I came home, a family took care of me for surgery one and two. I made sure to send out gift baskets to each and every doctor that helped me. So I sent one to the OBGYN, my reproductive endocrinologist, 
and the Women's Institute and the colorectal surgeon just to make sure that they, and I wrote a card in there and I said, you don't understand how you've literally saved my life because my mental health was not the best at that point in time. I get so much joy in helping other people that going to work was exciting for me. When I told myself, you are overworking yourself. You're overworking yourself. This is not, people don't find joy going to work. (laughs) Like you're finding joy in going to work, Fran. It was, that's where I had my joy. Because being at home and sitting with my thoughts, I was exhausted. I didn't want to feel anymore. I think it's amazing that just at looking at the doctors and nurses that we deal with, and I get it. I mean, God bless nurses. A nurse saved my life too by reading my facial expression. Like she looked at me, like our eyes met and she looked at me and she knew exactly what was going on. And I was half a second from like when she started moving, the next thing I did was I fell to the floor and wasn't breathing. So God bless nurses. God bless these these doctors and nurses that have, but that have this empathy because they showed, it sounds like they showed you exactly what you wanted to emulate. Going Absolutely. forward in your practice. Absolutely. I made sure to kind of just take that into account that pay attention to how these doctors are treating you. Yeah. And pay attention to how it's making you feel. So I don't care if, even if you're on your worst day, the client doesn't need to know about it. Mm-hmm. You make sure you leave whatever you're going through at home at home before you go in there and deal with the client. Right. So even though they could understand, they understood to a certain extent what I was going through. And I had a conversation with my mentor because I kind of hit a wall to a certain extent when working with some of my parents. And he said, it's because they know you're hiding something and you're not talking about it. And I said, what good would it do if I started talking about my issues? He said, you know how to do it. You're not going to be talking about your issues, but you can self-disclose, which will also push them a little bit to self-disclose about their own situations. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to self-disclose. So with surgery too, I did mention to my parents that I have endometriosis, I have fibroids, and this is why I've been, you know, I kind of leave every year for a couple of weeks. And some women started laughing and saying, I know that I was just waiting for you to say something. And now I can tell you what's going on with me. And a lot of these women had similar issues that they weren't talking about. And then once I started talking about it and opened up about it, I had quite a few moms who were considering hysterectomies, quite a few moms who had cysts, uterine fibroids, a few moms who who got diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And I thought, thank you, God, for using me to help these women talk about their stories and feel uncomfortable. And then with the clients that had on the fibroids, I refer them to my doctor. Here's her name. Here's an information. She's amazing. She's not going to judge you. And I felt, I just felt great. I felt free. I'm like, thank God I'm actually able to help these women. I wish I had someone who was doing this for me at that point in time. It's a lot of, it's a heavy load we carry when you're working on these things on your own. It's a very heavy load. I feel like sometimes to a certain extent, I'm still carrying it. It's probably why my arms are so jacked, but. Yeah, I think these are, I mean, all traumas in our life, big or small, whatever it is, I think 
we can carry them for quite a long time. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not a trauma specialist. I wish I knew the answer. I don't know if you can let them go. I'm sure mm-hmm. you can heal them. I'm sure you can work through them. You can use them to help other people, but I don't know what that does to the actual trauma in your body. I had to remind myself, just remember that trauma sitting in the body can formulate into something else. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're taking care of yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Right. And I started seeing a therapist and I started practicing yoga again and just trying to work with my body instead of fighting my body and trying to put myself in these positions that I know I cannot do because I also have a fused, a frozen pelvic. Instead of fighting my body, work with her. Mm. And I remember a nurse telling me when I was doing physical therapy, we're going to have to accommodate the fibroids. And I looked at her, I was like, no, the fuck we aren't. We're not accommodating her. She needs to come out. Fast forward till now, we have to accommodate whatever is going on in the uterus, Fran. We're going to have to accommodate her. So I might not be able to do this, but I can do that. I might not be able to do this, but I could do that. And for others looking on the, the others on the outside, looking on the inside, are thinking, oh, she doesn't sound like she has a very, you know, a quality of life that sucks. You know, in the beginning, it did. <laughs> In the beginning, it did. I felt like I couldn't do anything. I always joke around and say, I have three good hours in the day, so don't waste my time. <laughs> I, can, I can get up and go to work. It takes me a while to kind of get started with my day. And I start later in the day, but that works for me, especially being in private practice. And I can end at a reasonable time, not coming home at like two or three in the morning. And I felt good about, oh, I feel good about what I'm doing. I don't have to be at every party. I've done enough partying from 17 to 28 to last me a lifetime. (laughs) If anybody knows me, you know that I was definitely partying in college from the first week that I got there to when I left. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, okay, it's okay. I get it. I have that part of my life. And now it's time to grow up a little bit, mature, and understand your body, what you can and cannot do. And once again, grateful for having a friend group that understands we are still going to invite her even though we know she's not going to come. And that's what some individuals don't understand. We still want to be invited to your events, even if we're not going to show up, because it means you're still considering me. There have been quite a few times where I just didn't want to go out when I was in Ohio. I didn't. But I also realized that the people that I was around didn't understand what I was going through. And I told myself, that's okay. You're going to have your people. And you do. The ones, mm-hmm. the ones who understand are the ones who are driving up here and visiting you, going up to doctor's appointments with you, sending you cards and balloons after surgery. You're perfectly fine. So as an individual with a chronic illness, so many times I've heard, oh, you're such a flake. You never want to go out. Yes. You never want to do anything. Well, yes. I'm sorry that I am. It's not a regular tired. It's a fatigue that feels like, I don't know. Like I've been in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It's just an extreme tiredness. You, I can sleep for 14 hours and wake up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. It, it, it's just a fatigue that just takes over your entire being. From the brain fog to feeling like you're moving in slow motion to the inflammation and the pain. It's just a lot. So if I wake up and I'm feeling great, good, I can get some work done today. If I wake up and I'm not feeling great, hey, I'm going to stay in bed a little bit longer because I can do that now. Having my own practice allows me to honor my body the way that I should 
instead of constantly pushing and going and pushing and going. Because the way that I pushed myself in my doctoral program, it was unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Unhealthy. Granted, I was able to complete my program, but I sit back and think, you put yourself through a lot. Yeah. And you put yourself through a lot. So even when I finished, I took a sabbatical, which people had issues with, for about two years. For about two years, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to read anything about mental health. I was tired. I decided I was going to move back home. Take, I'm also a caregiver, taking care of my mom. Mm-hmm. And two years, I did absolutely nothing. And I felt okay with it. I felt okay. But once again, being in academia, you're not doing anything. What do you mean you're not looking for a job? Are you publishing while you're taking that break? <laughs> Exactly what it was. Oh, I know. Was I know? That's exactly what it was. And I thought I I don't even want to look at my dissertation. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to read anything. Don't speak to me in common sense. (laughs) Let me go back to being. Well, in my head, I was always a trap queen. Let me go back into you know in my head and mind my business and just do nothing. And once again, I feel like with American culture, it's very hustle culture. We have to be doing something every second of the day. You know what? Sometimes I just want my me time. I just want my me time. I keep my phone on do not disturb all day. And my brother hates it. He absolutely hates it. It's so funny to me. (laughs) He absolutely (laughs) hates it. You know, that's one of the the big things that I talk to when I talk to clients and I'm teaching classes. You really, you've got to give yourself that break. You, you You can't judge yourself by keeping up with with other people you know i know it's true for me and maybe it's true for you having an invisible illness means that your illness is not top of mind for other people so they just kind of naturally expect you to keep up with stuff and then you expect yourself to keep up with stuff and when you're not or you're taking a break it can really we can really be hard on ourselves which means that we're not taking a break we're just like doing nothing and being hard on ourselves at the same time I was very hard on myself and I had this, this conversation with a friend and she mentioned, I don't think you understand how amazing you are and what you've done and what you've been through. It's okay to rest. Don't compare yourself to what everybody else is doing because everybody else in your program, they're, they didn't have to go through multiple surgeries. They didn't have to go through parents with cancer. They didn't have to go through a brother in the ICU. They weren't driving back and forth from Ohio to New York whenever my brother would get sick. They weren't driving back for their parents' chemo. You were driving nine hours back and forth, even though you were sick. And I would stop at every rest stop. And I would make it home in 11 hours. And I remember my dad would say, you have to stop doing this. You're not feeling well yourself. And in one instance, I had drove home 11 hours. And everyone was freaking out, like, why did it take you so long? And I just came to my room and I slept and I woke up and I had gone into the living room and I noticed my brother was limping and my mom was sitting like a lump on a log in the couch and it hit me oh shit everybody's sick and my brother limping he had ulcers on both legs which is very common for individuals with sickle cell disease and poor blood circulation and he was kind of walking on his tiptoes And my mom, chemo, her fingertips were black, hair was falling out, and she was so depressed. 
and she didn't want to, she didn't tell any of her friends at the time that she had cancer. So sorry, mom. Um, I just told them. <laughs> and it was a very difficult time for us. My dad was quiet. He didn't want to talk about anything. Right. He was just more worried about me driving back and forth. And I'm more worried about him having cancer. Like, you don't have to worry about me. I got this. And I'm thinking, once again, I have to take care of everyone. But for some odd reason, it didn't, it didn't bother me then. And now that I'm older, I'm just like, listen, I have to get a man and some kids. I can't keep doing this for y'all. Okay? I, I can't. Boundaries. I can. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But then I was just so concerned about taking care of my family. I can't lose these individuals. Right. So whatever you're going through, suck it up. You're going to be okay. The holidays, for some holidays, I didn't come home. And for some, I did. And it was too much for me because my oldest brother saw me and he just started crying. I'm like, oh, stop it. I'm going to be fine. Because you look so different. Since you don't look like yourself. I look like a, a stick with a lump <laughs> right at my stomach. And I was just kind of like wobbling back and forth. I wasn't eating very much. I was always sleeping. And I sit back sometimes and I think about that. And I tell myself, I'm so glad I'm in the position that I'm in now with the chronic illnesses because I don't know what I would do if I was still experiencing that type of immense pain now. I, even when I have um, flare-ups, I breathe through it. I tell myself, this is going to be okay. You're in pain, but you're going to be okay. I'll talk to God. I will stay in my room. I'll get an ice pack or a heating pad. I might pace up and down the hallway to kind of like relieve a little bit of tension. I'll stay in the bathroom for a couple of hours with my essential oils and steam. And I just try to focus on experience this and it's going to pass. It's not going to be here forever. And if it hits a certain threshold where I cannot take it, then you can go to the hospital. So that's how I've been dealing with my flare-ups because the pain is not going to go away, as my OBGYN told me. If you're still in pain and it's stage four and it's in the cul-de-sac and the rectum, that's a very difficult position to remove endometriosis in. I'm pretty sure the endometriosis is still there. And your uterus, you still have your uterus and you have adenomyosis. You're going to be in pain for the rest of your life. It was hard for me to take in, but it's the life that I have to live and I have to accept. Because if I continue to push it away and act like it doesn't exist, it's only going to prolong the suffering. So I accept it. I know that it's here. How can I work with it so I can actually improve my quality of life? You posed a question before, like you don't know what you would have done if you were still dealing with so much that you were before, you didn't know how you would have continued to be able to take care of your family. But I think you answered your own question, mm. right? You would find ways, I think. And that's that's kind of part of, I think, the, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. But that's the amazing part, I think, of us finding strategies and finding things that help ourselves and finding things that we use when things flare up and when things get really intense. And sometimes we can do it so naturally. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes from, and another thing that you said that was so amazing, it comes from when we allow it 
even though it's this big bag thing and it's this crazy thing. And sometimes we don't really understand what our bodies are going through. If you allow whatever's happening to happen, that's actually a good thing because I think even more of the problems come when we fight against it because then we just, we're fighting against our own bodies. And so when you're allowing it to come and you're just kind of letting that natural energy flow happen within that, it allows our brains to kind of open up and realize, okay, here's something that helps me. Mm-hmm. And here's something that I know that helps me. And before we know it, we've got this whole toolbox full of things that we go to and help ourselves heal. Absolutely. You have to feel the feelings. Yes. Society. Sometimes society will tell us, okay, you're sad, get over it. <laughs> sometimes. Well, sometimes. You know what? You're right. One hundred percent time. Or the toxic positivity. But I always tell my clients, don't be afraid to feel your feelings. Mm-hmm. Sit in it, but don't dwell in it. Acknowledge that the feelings are here. You are hurt. You're confused. There might be suicidal ideation, hopelessness, helplessness. I need you to be able to acknowledge those feelings, especially with the chronic illness. We have all gone through that cycle at some point in time where we, quote unquote, didn't want to be here mm-hmm. because we didn't know what was going to happen. And if this would be the course of our lives for the rest of our lives. And then using and changing that thought and telling myself, what can I do for myself now? What can I give myself now? What do I need now? And the hardest thing for myself at the time was being able to look myself in the mirror and tell myself, you're going to get through this. Like I said, that one year, I didn't look in the mirror at all because of the way that I looked. And I explained this to my clients. I want you to look in the mirror and give yourself some positive affirmations. Tell yourself, I love you. One of the great qualities about you It is so hard for my clients to do this. Oh, from yeah. Working with, with children to yes. adults. It is so hard for individuals to look themselves in the mirror and say that I love you. Or I think you're wonderful. I think you are going to get through this. Or I know you're going to get through this. Yeah. It's it's difficult. Not only look at yourself in the mirror, but look at yourself in the eyes mm-hmm. in the mirror. Don't just look at your nose or look <laughs> the zit that you have on your on your, you know, <laughs> on your cheek. Look yourself in the eye. And that's mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it sounds like such an easy thing to do, but it's not it's so hard. Yeah. It, it's something to work up to and then but get used to doing it, even giving yourself a little wink, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Smiling at yourself. I mean, it's it's powerful, but mm-hmm. it is not to be overlooked that it can be a really hard thing Absolutely. for people to do. But I have to also use the humor side of that, especially when working with myself, you know, because this therapist loves to do therapy on ourselves, right? Oh, it's sure. free. <laughs> and I used to watch this show, Awkward Black Girl, on YouTube. And Issa would get in the mirror and kind of like hype herself up before big events in her life and she would start rapping. I'm a terrible rapper, absolutely terrible rapper, just like her. So I would get in the mirror sometimes and that's what I would do, you know? I <laughs> I'd love start it. Ra- I start rapping to myself and I'm like, Fran, you are not T.I., please stop. But <laughs> it gives me, it kind of fills me up knowing that I still have that spirit about me because it was a long stint where I thought my spirit is gone. My zest for life is gone. I'm not smiling. I'm not talking to anyone. I felt like I had really lost that. And being able to look myself in the eye, in the mirror and say, you're still you. 
you're just going through a lot right now. You're a little stressed out. You're going through a lot. Acknowledge it. And you're going to work through it. And you're going to be okay. Instead of this gloom and doom <laughs> that it used to be. And just acknowledging, okay, I'm not in that position anymore. I'm safe. I'm taken care of. And I can get through this. Yeah. Which I think after all of the discussions that we've had with toxic positivity, I I mean, I'm a mindset coach. I think positive psychology is amazing and there's mm-hmm. so much goodness, but that's what positivity really is, mm-hmm. is what you were just describing. It's not about forcing yourself to be positive. It's not about ignoring the negative feelings and, and ignoring and not talking about the problems that you have and sharing them. That's not what positivity it is. Is mm-hmm. what positivity really is is acceptance. It's letting whatever emotions flow through you because emotions are energy, and it's being able to have your own back. And truthfully, exactly. right? You can't force it. It's you've you've mm-hmm. got to believe it. But to say, hey, it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. for the record, I think Issa Rae is actually a really good rapper. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Insecure is one of my favorite shows. And every time she had like her little heart to heart in the mirror uh-huh. and the mirror like reflection. I love it. Oh, I love it. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. She, she's such a role model. I love Nisa. I love Nisa. She's greatness. Francesca, I could talk to you for like another three hours because <laughs> this is unbelievable and you're giving so much goodness. Please say you're going to come back and share more of your story and talk more about things that we didn't even get into. Well, in order to do that, I have to get a lawyer first. <laughs> Because there's certain things that really kind of influence the story, but I want to get a lawyer first if we talk about that. But yes, I'd oh, love to come so back. Funny. I'd love to come back. Just share about your work and, and how people can talk with their families about chronic illness and how they can deal with the family dynamic and compassion, compassion fatigue and all of these oh, amazing cool. things that we didn't even get to. I would love to yeah. have you. Nothing that needs a lawyer. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. Let me go. Okay. I can work that out for you. I can definitely work that out for you. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, you're not the first person who said, I can't talk about this because I don't have a lawyer and I can't. It's really, it's. Listen, academia. Academia. Yeah, the things you can talk about that off. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. I know you're going to help so many listeners. I can't wait to get this out. I hope so. I hope so. And thank you so much for commenting on my post. I was super excited when I saw the comment. I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. When I looked at everything online about you and your podcast, this is what I was praying for. This is exactly what I was praying for. Well, thank you so much. I know I'm going to get so many comments (laughs) about this because it was just that good. So thank you so much. Awesome. So I'll see you in the internet streets. 100%. (laughs) Bye. If you like the show, don't be shy. Please give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening right now. To see complete show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit andreahansencoaching.com. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, take care. <laughs>